To understand the times we live in is to understand the Bible. There is panic and despair because of lack of knowledge of the Word of God. We pray that this time with us, it will give you peace. Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Kurita, your host. Thank you for tuning in with us. Today, the uniqueness of the Bible. For the next few weeks, we are going to look into the Bible to understand and to have an assurance that uh, we are not left alone, that God is in control of everything. We're living in a very difficult time right now as we broadcasting this program when people are suffering all around the world because that terrible disease called COVID-19. I would like to welcome our panel today via Zoom. We are restricted, not able to do it from the studio, but we are here to continue our programs with Bible study. And I would like to welcome my panel, starting with Brenton. I think he's the furthest for us. And Brenton, welcome to Bible study. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be down here in Mount Gambia, but being able to talk to our folk on Zoom. Thank you, Brenton, and also I would like to welcome uh, Harvey. Harvey, good to have you with us. Thanks, Nick. Look forward to the study today. All right, Helen, you are on also from the other side of the city. Welcome to Bible study. Thank you so much, Nick. It is a delight to be here, and I'm looking forward to the study with the colleagues. Thank you. And Len, it's our um, facilitator, and this is my wife, Lija. Welcome to the program also. Thank you very much. I'm very, I feel very privileged to study God's Word. And Len, it's our facilitator. Today, uh, I would like to just pass the microphone to Len, and thank you for uh, putting it together and uh, leading uh, into the Bible study today. All right. Well, welcome, listeners. This week, we begin a new series of studies, this time about the whole book, the Bible. This fascinating, best-selling book, has shaped society, been the basis for civil law, given assurance and hope, and not the least, has changed lives. It might be likened to a diamond mine, full of riches, but often neglected. The Bible is a collection of 66 separate books, written over a period of 1,500 years, by various authors from three continents. Yet, there is a common thread running through all the separate books, and that is the love of God for mankind. The Bible was the first book to be translated, the first book in the West to be mass-produced through printing, and the first book to be read in 95% of languages in the world. It's a book that accurately tells the future. It was inspired by the Spirit of God, and the book concerns you and me. So before we launch into this study today, Harvey, would you like to pray for us and our listeners? We thank you, Lord, that we can be here today and study your word. The Holy Spirit caused it to be written in the first place, and we invite your Spirit to be with us to help us to understand fully the message you have for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Harvey. Helen, to start off with, would you like to read Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and tell us how the Bible came about? Okay, I'm reading from the New Living Translation and it says here in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. The Bible came about because it was inspired by God's Spirit. Do you think the Holy Spirit told the Bible writers each and every word that they should write? I find that interesting because some people actually believe that, but these men were not robots per se. It was written by human men but expressed um, the ideas in human language, but it was definitely inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were God's penmen, not God's pen. And it wasn't the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were actually inspired. And I just... I just um, believe that he guided the mind in the selection of what to speak and what to write. And it was a treasure that was entrusted to earthen vessels, yet it is nonetheless from heaven. Harvey, what counsel did Moses, the Israelite leader, give to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verses 46 and 47? Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which shall, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land <laughs> which you cross over the Jordan to possess. So what Moses was saying here is follow what God requires of you in his word. And even though this is right back in Deuteronomy, so it was very early as far as the Bible was concerned. But if God gives us directions through his word, then our responsibility is to follow it. And that has been the case through all the Bible and We'll deal with that more, no doubt, as the as the weeks go by. Um, what does it mean, do you think, panel, that these words are your life? Anybody like to comment? I think simply that if this is the way of life, it's actually telling us what our life should be. Um, if we follow what God in God's way, it will be the best way. So. Jesus himself said, I have come to make give you life more abundantly. So if we follow his word, then we're doing what's best for ourselves as well as influencing others. Now I see it a little bit like uh, if you get a new car and you have a manual and in the manual it says this car requires this kind of fuel, for example, if it needs super or it needs um, standard petrol, and you put diesel in, well, you're not going to have a very successful uh, run with your car. The engine's going to come up in no time. So these words are your life applies to us. God tells us 
how we should live our lives. And if we follow that way, as you said, Harvey, that is the best way. Well, let's move on. Brenton, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and the verse verses 1 to 4, Jesus is called the Word. Would you like to read that and then comment? Most assuredly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. A comment on that, Len, is, is this. Christ is revealed in the Bible as the creator. So therefore, when Christ, as he is referred to here in John chapter 1, when he came to this earth, he didn't appear in the form of God that he was in heaven. Only rarely did divinity ever show through humanity during his human life. Therefore, if we were to know God, we would have to know God through what he said and what he did. And certainly the evidence throughout the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark and Luke, as well as John, the evidence is that um, Christ showed the very works that God had sent him to do. But even more than that, in John 6.38, a little bit further on, Jesus says to those who were listening to him, my words are spirit and life. In other words, if you follow my words, if you are obedient to my words, you will live not only physically but also spiritually. I think this is a truly wonderful section of Scripture, Len, and the word, uh, the word that we are talking about is the word that Christ himself expressed both verbally and also in, in action. If we follow that today as panel and also as listeners, I believe we are certainly in the way of the kingdom of heaven. So, Brenton, can I just ask you something here? Yes. <laughs> Is there any difference between the record in the Bible and what Jesus actually said? I believe not, Len, because he frequently referred people um, in his time. He said, have you not read in the scriptures? The scriptures say, you remember when uh, they asked him about divorce, he said, what did Moses tell you? And he said it was not so from the beginning. And then he went back to the scriptures. When he rose from the dead and he met the two um, disciples on the road to Emmaus, his comment was, how foolish you are and how slow to believe everything that was written about the Messiah in the law and the prophets. And it says then he opened to them the scripture and revealed himself in the scripture. Yes, there was no contradiction between what Jesus said and what was previously written. Yes. Yes. Although he did amplify some of those things. Now, if any of you listeners out there <coughs> have this opinion, uh, like was expressed to me one day, uh, a man said to me one day, I believe in Jesus and what Jesus said, but I don't believe in all that Old Testament stuff. The point simply is this, that Jesus did believe and understand and taught all that Old Testament stuff. Len, just before you move on, um, a couple of things here uh, I would like to mention also. We are talking about the uniqueness of the Bible, and we are talking about the Bible and the inspired world as being 
different and we associated that with Jesus himself as uh, Brandon was reading from John chapter 1 uh, from verse 1 onwards what is important for us to understand uh, today and i mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the program then to understand bible is to understand also the times we live in in some aspects even from a prophetic point of view and we dealt with that in the last uh, bible studies but what i would like to say is that bible cannot be read and understood like any other books in the world because it's totally different and if you approach the bible in the same manner like any other books in the world you may struggle to benefit and to understand the bible in the way you should understand and i think this is a very big thing today in uh, our society bible needs to be let's say read or understood through prayer through special time aside to contemplate and to understand this is not just a matter of reading the bible is to understand and you, as you understand the bible you understand the giver of the bible if you like yes helen now just adding to that i believe that because the holy spirit moved the men to write the bible uh, and uh, give us the words of god mm-hmm. we need to before we open the bible we need to pray that the holy spirit will give us the understanding of um, what he inspired yes yes simply the fact that Jesus didn't say anything which contradicted anything from the Old Testament. And we have to understand that the Old Testament is the only scriptures they had in Jesus' time. They didn't have the New Testament at all. Yes, that's right. Well, anyhow, the Bible is quite a large book. Ledger, there is a common focus in all scripture. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? The central focus of whole scripture is Jesus. So his coming in the flesh as the Messiah was a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And uh, because he lived, died and lives again, and we are waiting for his second coming, we have not only the scriptures that confirm that, we have also... Uh, at least 65 direct messianic predictions in the Old Testament about Jesus. But in the whole Bible, we have about 350 prophecies about Jesus. Yes. Um, I have a special Bible. I've mentioned this on air before, which lists all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And a man asked me about this one time and, There were pages and pages of them, and I had to count them, and it was about 350. Well, anyhow, we want to share with you now, listeners, some examples of the variety of people who wrote the Bible. Now, this is just a sample. So, Helen, maybe you would like to share about one of these. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm thinking of Moses. He was drawn out of the water. He was taken into Pharaoh's palace. He was known as a prince of Egypt. He then left there and he went out into the wilderness, so to speak, and he became a shepherd for many, many years. And then he was called by God to be a leader. And he actually wrote when he was an old man of about a 100 or somewhere around about there. And um, the book of Genesis tells us about him, and that was written approximately... 1440 BC 
um, amazing, his life, but he was one of the people that um, certainly added to the Bible. Thank you. Uh, Harvey, would you like to tell us about another one? Yes. After what Helen was just saying about Moses, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible, plus maybe another one, but I'm talking about this time a man by the name of Amos. He was one of the minor prophets, we call them, and he wrote much less. But he was not, again, not a writer generally. He was actually an orchardist, and he was only a young man when he actually wrote his book of the Bible, and he wrote it at probably about 740 BC. So one thing you notice there is that Moses wrote about a 1,000 years earlier, or not a 1,000, but... Seven or eight hundred years earlier. So it's spread over a long period of time. In fact, the whole Bible is spread over about 1,500 years. That's right. Actually, Amos is one of my fav- favourite Bible characters. Lydia, would you like to share, us, uh, share with us about another Bible writer? Jeremiah was a prophet. Actually, he was a son of a priest and uh, uh, it says in the Bible that God appointed him as a prophet to the nations and God knew him from, from the moment he formed him. And Jeremiah was uh, named as a weeping prophet and um, God wanted to bring his people back to him through, through the, the prophecies that uh, God uh, revealed it to him. Yes, um, you know why he was called the weeping prophet? Well, he was called the weeping prophet because the messages he had to deliver to the people were very unpopular Mm. and some pretty bad things were done to Jeremiah and that's why he probably, uh, the name of the weeping prophet was applied to him because he didn't Sorry. He didn't have a very happy life. Yes, Helen. Um, did Jeremiah write the book of Lamentations? Possibly. Yes. Possibly. I think he did. That gives you an idea of, you know, what how he obviously was feeling as well. I don't believe that he converted many people. I know it's the Holy Spirit's job to convert, but I don't believe he he you know, if you looked at his life, you would think he wasn't terribly successful, but God used him in a mighty, mighty way. Len, just just a quick one on uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was never allowed to marry. God forbade him to marry. So he not only, as it were, articulated an unpopular message, which was poorly received, he didn't have the comfort of a wife or family to support him. So I think you've got two reasons there why he could be called the weeping prophet. (laughs) Yes, well, that's a very good point. Well, now... These ones we've talked about before, Moses was well-educated, Amos not, Jeremiah probably not. What about Daniel, Brenton? Uh, Daniel was an interesting person, one of my favourite Bible characters, Len, and something that his Faith FM um, panel and listeners we've been sharing over the last few weeks. Uh, Daniel was taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem at the age of about 17 possibly in 606 BC. Can you imagine being taken prisoner to another country and never seeing your homeland again? Because that's what Daniel went through. However, when he came to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court, 
Nebuchadnezzar was a smart operator, Len. He used to take people from his conquered lands, the best of them, and Daniel was from probably the royal family. He would take the best of them and then educate them in his university in Babylon, and then they would become leaders and administrators in his government. That would therefore ensure their loyalty to him. However, Daniel was loyal above all things to God. He became a high official. He became prime minister uh, of Babylon and probably also of Medo-Persia. What I like about Daniel is that he was faithful to the Lord in the hardest of times. And I think I could encourage our listeners to realise we are living in hard times. More than ever before, now is the time to be faithful to the Lord like Daniel was. So we've got quite a variety of different authors and we've got a couple more to go yet. Nick, uh, would you tell us about Matthew? All right, Matthew, again from the New Testament, a very interesting character. One of those people who probably were very rejected by the society because of his um, job, if you like. He was a tax collector and I believe none of us will uh, really like to see the tax collectors coming around and um, yeah the stigma with Matthew uh, could be quite uh, you know interesting and ha- has an impact in in his time nevertheless uh, Matthew was a changed man and uh, he wrote some of most wonderful words in the Bible about Jesus and uh, what I would like to say also about this and the authors of the Bible. These people were people who experienced God in their lives. I never heard in the Bible that somebody just wrote a, let's, a portion of the Bible and uh, not experiencing that closeness with God. And I think that's very important because with other books and bestsellers of the day, uh, you know, you can have different interests in writing those books. And I like to say that of God, it's a living word, may not bring effects immediately. But if you are exposed to the word of God in time, you may see those effects. And I think that was uh, what Matthew experienced himself. And he was not the same man again. Yes. Now, with um, people who wrote the Bible... There had been, particularly with some of the New Testament writers, some of them didn't have a very good past. And I think there's a point here that our listeners should take to heart. It really doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you commit your life to God and get your sins forgiven, what matters is what you are now. So don't let your past hold you up in your Christian experience. For example, Helen Would you tell us about Paul? He had a pretty inglorious past. Yeah, Paul was originally known as Saul, and uh, at that time he was a Pharisee, a devout Jew. He um, persecuted God's people. He thought he was doing the right thing, but sadly he wasn't, and he was feared by that time by the Jews. And then Paul, on his way to Damascus to destroy uh, some of these people of the new way, he met Jesus. And it was quite dramatical, and and our experience may be dramatical in meeting Jesus, or it may not. It may be gradual. But nevertheless, as you said, Len, it is transforming power, and that's what happened to Paul. Paul became an apostle, and he became a missionary 
And I love reading Paul's writings, and, and he's written many books. But one of the books that he's written, Philippians, it was a letter, and he wrote it in about AD 61. And interestingly enough, he wrote it from prison. He wrote a couple of other little books, you know, Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. But, you know, he wrote a lot from prison. And what amazes me about Paul is how through it all he was rejoicing in his life with God. Yes, he turned his back on his former life and considered all that as rubbish. Well, we'll do one more. We've got well-educated, important, unimportant. Let's have a look at the gospel writer, John. Lydia, would you share with us about John? Uh, John was a former fisherman and he was called by Jesus, come and follow me and become fishers of men. So he became an apostle, he followed Jesus, and he became a missionary, and um, also he became a church leader in his time. And we know that John wrote the book of Revelation, which was written in uh, 70 AD and was in his uh, elderly age. Yes, thank you. So, Brendan, to sum, them, sum all this up with this uh, sample group, were the Bible writers all scholars? The simple answer, Len, is no, and I'll give you an example. Lydia has just touched upon John, and we have noted that he was a fisherman. However, I could also mention someone called Peter, who would be one of the better-known characters in the Bible. Peter was also a fisherman. He says in one of his letters, our dear friend Paul writes some things that are very hard to understand and uh, people uh, twist and um, misrepresent and misplace uh, the things that he says. What this tells me, Len, is something incredibly interesting. We've said that there's about 40 authors of the Bible over 1,600 years. They were obviously God-inspired because if you look at their different backgrounds that we've just touched on, you come up with some interesting things. Today, the messages that we try and get out to society are best given by a variety of people. Rather than just one person banging on and on and on, we listen to multiple messages. Now, God has chosen, I believe, these men with all their different backgrounds to relate to different people. Some of the Bible writers relate to, I know for a fact in being a minister and studying with people, people can relate to the Gospels. The Gospels were written by a fisherman. They were written by a tax collector. They were written by another fisherman. And uh, people can relate to that. When you get into the books of Paul, they become more intellectual. But the interesting point about all of this is that regardless of it all, they're all pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. And it helps us, I believe, in... um, recognising that, as it says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I think Peter says that, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but for holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What we can share, Len, with our listeners today is in reading the Bible, and I think Nick touched on it, we must have the Holy Spirit to guide us. And no, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to be able to understand it. Len, if I could just uh, intervene here. We are talking today about the um, validity of the Bible and so how to understand 
the Bible. And was mentioned quite a few times here that uh, those characters in the Bible who are the authors of those 66 books, they all had a closer relationship with God, an experience with God. And you may hear that phrase from the Bible. We, as human beings, we can be a living testimony. When is that happening? When you have a closer relationship with God. You cannot be an example or a, or a living testimony if you don't have that relationship and that conversion. All these authors, which we refer to, they wrote those books in the Bible when they have, they had that experience with God. Some of them have some bad experiences in their lives, but when they wrote down the Bible, they were in that conversion relationship with God. Is that right? No, I think you're right, yes. Yes. All right, well, let's move on to another aspect. And another impressive feature of the Bible is prophecy. Now, when you talk about prophecy, some people straight away think about Nostradamus. Mm. He's been upheld as a great prophet. But you know the uh, accuracy of his predictions? Well, at the highest figure, they reckon it could be about 4%. That's one prediction right in every 25. As far as I'm concerned, if he made a prediction about me and he's long since dead, and one prediction out of 25 might be right, I don't think I'd accept him as a very reliable prophet. However, the Bible has, as somebody said earlier, an accuracy rate of 100%. We'd like to share just a few prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus Harvey, would you like to start us off and read Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 7, and then comment, if you wouldn't mind? Yes. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here is a very clear messianic prophecy given in the Old Testament. It's out of Isaiah. And Jesus fulfilled each of these absolutely in his life and as it happens, of course, in his death because it was prophesying the death of Jesus. But it was also saying how we would relate to Jesus at that time as well. It was really saying that people... When Jesus came to this earth, even though he was the God of the universe, he came and he was not considered anything special by the people he came to save. And so the prophecy, this particular prophecy, has been fulfilled absolutely 100% correctly. Yes, we uh, last series of studies on the book of Daniel we learned there how the prophecies regarding 
the kingdoms of the earth and other things all came to pass. And here again, with these messianic prophecies, have come to pass. Helen, would you like to share with us Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and comment on that, please? Yeah, but just before I do, I'd just like to make a comment on that Isaiah 53. For me, it was like God was willing to pull back the curtain of time to let the people of Isaiah's day look ahead to the suffering and the and the future Messiah and how our forgiveness would come through that. God is just an amazing God when he does that. Okay, I'm reading Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says here, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, it says here, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble. He is riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Um, this is just amazing when you think about it because this was talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem. It even explained that he came on the colt and that was actually fulfilled. Matthew 21, I believe, 1 to 11 shares that with us and as it was predicted. But it was the amazing thing was, Len, it was predicted more than 500 years before it even happened. Yes. Kings don't normally ride on donkeys. They usually ride on noble-looking white horses. But here this prediction again, um, it was fulfilled. Now, Legend, would you read Micah chapter 5 and verse 2? Here we have another very uh, dramatic thing where a prophecy came true. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this is a, a prophecy made by the prophet Micah that uh, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in Judah and uh, he will be a chosen ruler over Israel by God. And as most people would realize, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah. There were two Bethlehems in the Holy Land, and it specified the very one where he was born, Harvey. What about Genesis 49 and verse 10? Yes, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So here it's really talking about Jesus in his giving the law to the people, the Israelites, plus the fact it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's basically when you talk about scepter, you're talking about the royal line. until So the royal line would remain right through until Jesus came as his first, when he first came um, to earth as a human being. So the, the royal line continued right through to that time. Mm. Now, interestingly, of course, this is out of the book of Genesis, which is right back in the time of Moses. He wrote it, and yet the prophecy was talking not just about Moses' time, because it did mention about the lawgiver, but it goes right through to Jesus being here on earth. Now, if it was a guess, it would be a pretty good guess, wouldn't it, that Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. 
because there were no tribes at that particular time. Well, Brenton, what about Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26? All right, let's read it together. Know therefore and understand. Notice that, that's pretty important. Daniel was meant to understand it. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. These two verses tell you the start date for the restoration of Jerusalem. There were three decrees that were actually given, one by Cyrus, one by Darius, and one by Artaxerxes. The third one was the one that really legally re-established the, uh, Israel as a nation under the tutelage of um, Medo-Persia. That began in the year 457 BC. Counting forward using Lem the day for a year principle, what we call the historicist method of biblical interpretation, we find that the period of Christ's ministry began in AD 27, and we find beyond that that it says in the midst of the week he would be cut off. Now, when you study um, the New Testament, it's interesting because when Christ went to the cross, he was abandoned, he was alone. Nobody was with him and nobody supported him. But the cutting off refers, I believe, he was cut off, it says, not for himself, but for others. He was cut off because he hung on the cross of Calvary in order that we might have eternal life. And the interesting chapter, uh, verse 26, the latter part of it, actually gives Daniel an insight into the future. It tells him that the temple, which at that time was in ruins and hadn't even been rebuilt, that the temple that would ultimately be built by Herod the Great would be destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans and that would be the end of the Jews as a nation. So we have a thumbnail sketch for Daniel of the anointed one, the Messiah, the term Messiah is anointed one. We have a thumbnail sketch of the future for his people, and that's why he was told, I believe, at Len to know and understand. It's very interesting that here these Old Testament prophecies given hundreds of years before all came to, to pass. Yes, um, we, uh, it was mentioned earlier, there are about 350 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. I want to comment about that a little bit later. Lydia, I know you've got something you want to share with us. The fact that these prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled with such precision in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus testifies to their divine inspiration and revelation. It also indicates that Jesus was who he claimed to be and others claimed him to be. Jesus followed the prophets of old in predicting his death and resurrection. And we have prophecies in Luke and in Matthew. And we also have the fall of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 and his second coming in John 14. Thus, the incarnation, death, and resurrection are predicted by the Bible and their fulfillment ensures 
its reliability. Okay, thank you for that. Now, listeners, when you consider the maths of probability, those who go to the horse races, they know something about probability. The bet could be there's a one in four chance that he will win or they might be uh, the odds might be 20 to 1 or something like that. Now, if you consider the maths of accurately predicting just one of these prophecies, for example, the place of Jesus' birth, considering all the named places in the world at that time, let's say there were 100,000 places. So the probability of getting that right would be 1 in 100,000. But then the probability of getting all 350 prophecies correct would be more like one in billions of billions, which is an impossibility. The fact that the prophecies regarding Jesus have all been fulfilled is a powerful reason for you to believe that the Bible was indeed inspired by God. In the days we live in, people are not very interested in the prophecies of the Bible. They will talk more about just the Gospels and the New Testament, and thinking that prophecy are, you know, not necessarily for us, not as important. The reason why I want to mention that prophecy is really important is because that will show us who God is. He's a God who knows everything, including the future. <laughs> and because, because of that, Jesus said, you know, I'm telling you these things that when you'll see them fulfilled, you will believe. Now, prophecy is very important for us to understand because that will strengthen our faith and our belief in God. Yes, yes. Harvey, what, what did you want to share with us here? I was just going to say, in fact, that as far as the Gospels are concerned, they are not devoid of prophecy. There's lots of prophecies in in the Gospels as well. You only have to read Matthew 24 as a good example of that. Yes. All right. Well, you know, some people deny the existence of Jesus. We've been talking about prophecies that relate to Jesus. Some people deny his existence. But, you know, the Bible writers, Matthew and John and Luke and the apostles, Peter, Paul and Jude, all verify the reality of Jesus' existence. And that's an important thing. In fact, I remember reading somewhere, Peter said, we were eyewitnesses. We were right there. You can't deny what we've said because we were there. So anyhow, Brenton, would you like to read First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5? Certainly, Len. It says, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, Paul is saying here <coughs> that there is data from the scripture, and I think Harvey mentioned earlier on the scripture that they would have had in those days was simply the Old Testament. There is an indication here that Christ was to die, that he was to rise again. And Paul is now saying, I'm passing on to you what was passed on to me. 
I was told I saw myself the resurrected Christ, and we believe that that took place when he was stopped on the road to Damascus and where the voice said to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That was when Paul actually met the resurrected Christ, and he never forgot that, and he's saying, I'm passing on to you what was passed on to me. What we're telling you is factual. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And Cephas, which is another name for Peter, one of the 12, is a witness to that, and so are the others. And then in another place, I think he goes on and says there are about 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ. In other words, Len, we can have 100% confidence in the death and resurrection of Christ. So those people who uh, say that the Bible is just a collection of myths and legends, including about Jesus, well, I'm afraid they've overlooked a lot of very powerful evidence. Helen, yes, about Jesus telling about his death and resurrection, the Bible tells us something else which is very, very important. Would you share that with us? I'd be happy to. It is very important because it gives us an amazing amount of hope. It's taken from First Thessalonians 4 and verse 14. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says here, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And And this was, as I said, this is a message of hope. If we believe, as the Thessalonians said they did, then we should not despair when our loved ones die. You know, and none of us should. And Paul was actually reaching the crux of his reply to a troubled Thessalonian group of people. They have been concerned about the fate of their dead. And the apostle, he now assures them by a categorical statement that God has planned for the Christians who have died to be resurrected as Jesus was resurrected, such words assured the believers that their loved ones were not forgotten. Paul wished to stress the fact that our God, he brought forth Christ from the grave. Even so, would he bring forth the sleeping saints from the graves. I think that is such a message of hope, not just for us, but for everybody in this whole world. Yes, thank you. Harvey? I was just going to say, Helen... Wasn't there history in the Bible as well? Absolutely. Yes. There was history in the Bible. There was drama. There was love stories. There were so many things. I've often said to people, do you like reading? And they say, yeah. What what sort of reading do you like? And they'll tell me, oh, yes, I like this and that. And I said, well, there's a book that contains that and more. And that's the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point, Harvey. Um, it is. You know, um, archaeology has proven that the Bible is true. The Bible has said certain things about places and people and some people just didn't believe it. And then there have been discoveries about towns, for example, that existed that people said, well, there's no evidence of a town here, but a tablet, a stone tablet or something has been found which confirms the Bible's accuracy. Len, just on uh, what uh, Harvey was touching on, about the history, I like to say that the Bible is not only in the history, the Bible is history. 
And uh, this is important because uh, as we talked about the prophecy and uh, in the last Bible studies, we were talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's very important that the Bible is not only part of the history. The Bible is telling us the history. The Bible is unique when compared to other holy books because it is constituted in history. This means that the Bible is not merely the philosophical thoughts of a human being, like Confucius or Buddha, but it records God's acts in history as they progress towards a specific goal. In the case of the Bible, those goals are, number one, the promise of the Messiah, and number two, the second coming of Jesus. This progression is unique to the Judeo-Christian faith, in contrast to the cyclical view of many other world religions, from ancient Egypt to modern Eastern religion. All right. Well, now, it's all very well, some people might say, that the Bible writers talk about Jesus and so on and so on and those prophecies being fulfilled. But, Harvey, is there any independent confirmation that Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, etc., apart from the Bible? Yes, we have at least two non-Christian writers that are well known and they have integrity in their writings that we know about that actually confirmed the situation and the two we could name is Josephus, he was a Jewish historian and Tacitus, a Roman historian. So these are historians of note that actually have confirmed to a large extent what the Bible has said about Jesus. All right, thank you. Now, let's look at another issue here. If the Bible wasn't true, especially if Jesus' resurrection is just considered a myth and it was all wrong, what would be the implications of that, Brenton? Uh, The implications are um, of an eternal nature because many people have died believing that one day they'll be resurrected and see Jesus come again. So the outcome would be catastrophic for the whole of the human race. But with your permission, maybe we could read 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 19, where Paul sets this out in a propositional manner. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Really what he's saying is, my dear converts, because the people he's talking to, Len, are people that he converted to the Christian faith, the Corinthians. He's saying, if what I've told you is lies, you're actually worse off than everybody else. The pagans around you are eating, drinking and being merry and living life to the full because they don't see that there is any future. Once they die, that's it. I've told you that that's not the case. I've told you that there is a resurrection. But if I've told you lies, you are the most miserable people on earth. 
you're not only going to have an unhappy life here, but there's nothing to look forward to in the future. But verse 20 is a ringing declaration. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Wonderful news that we as a panel and our listeners can share. The basis, the whole basis, the whole foundation of the Christian religion is not based just on Christ's death on Calvary. If that had been all there was, we are of all men most miserable. But Christ rose from the dead, and that is the guarantee that we too will um, either rise from the dead or be taken to heaven living to live with the Lord. I think that's wonderful news. It's called the blessed hope. Yes. Ledger, why is the promise of the resurrection for the saints central to our faith? It's because to give us trust in Jesus' word, to give us hope and assurance and a reason for our living. We have to trust Jesus' word because he was seen by others, so witnesses saw him. It was Mary um, Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who saw him and other women uh, as the resurrected Christ. The disciples spoke to him also on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them for the Great Commission, and uh, the testimonies of the four Gospels uh, in the Bible speaks about Jesus' resurrection, and Paul also, he spoke about Jesus being raised. So his example is for us to trust his word in the way that he was risen, we will be raised in the end when Jesus is coming again. Those who belong to Christ and remain loyal to him will be raised at his coming, at his, his second coming, at the last trumpet. Yes, there are a lot of people in society who don't really know why they exist. But for a Christian who believes in the resurrection, there is a very powerful reason for living. When people come across the words that are written in the Bible and the thoughts presented there, it changes their lives. There are examples of history. There's personal examples of peace of people I've known who've been pretty hopeless. They've had changed lives. And the Bible can lead to people to have changed lives, to have hope in the coming of Jesus and the reassurance of eternal life. Now, we haven't quite finished this study, so I'm hoping that you, panel, will be able to give some really good, pithy, short statements about this particular study we've been having today. A take-home message, if you please. I would say, Len, that um, this study today gives us two things. It gives us confidence in the written word in the Bible that we have today in 2020, and it gives us hope and assurance that very soon Jesus will come again and all of the things we've been discussing today will be fulfilled. My prayer for ourselves as a panel and for those who are listening is that we will all be ready for the second of the two, the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. Harvey? A study of the word of God, the Bible, will change lives and change it for the better. Yes, Helen? I'd like to go back and refer to that 2 Corinthians 5.17 as a closing thought, that we become brand new people on the inside. We are not reformed. We are not rehabilitated. 
or re-educated, but we are recreated. We are made new creatures living in vital union with Christ, as Colossians tells us. At conversion, we do not merely turn over a new leaf. We begin a new life with a new master. And my life testifies to that right the way through. Thank you. Legend. The Word of God, the Bible, has the power to change lives exactly as Harvey said, but we have the promise in the scripture that this Word of God, the Bible, the whole, His Holy Word, must be understood in the light of a living Christ who promised to send His Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. So we have to pray for the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible to lead us in the right path, to understand his word in exactly in the right way that he uh, has to be understood. And only the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us the right understanding and interpretation of the Bible. Yes, we are talking today about the uniqueness of the Bible. And the discovery of the Word of God leads to conviction, repentance, and the power to change. I think this is very wonderful to know and to understand that when we have the Word of God in our hands and we give it right emphasis, then we'll see the change in our lives. And I think that's the most important thing about the Bible. We are not just to read the Bible as to get knowledge. The Bible is to change ourselves. Okay, well, I'd just like to share something too with a little statistic. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the members of one of his churches, used this little statement, comfort one another with these words. In this time in which we're living right now with this virus that's spreading around the world, People are feeling rather insecure and desperate. You know, in Brazil, there are many people, thousands of people, who are writing in for Bible correspondence courses because they realize that there is hope and comfort in the words of the Bible. Might that be your experience too, listeners, that you will find reassurance and hope and satisfaction and a reason for living in this book, the Bible that we're studying. Helen, would you like to close this study today with prayer? Yes, I'd like to. Thank you. Loving Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us this inspired word, the Bible. We thank you, Lord. You are an awesome God predicting many years before things happened and the prophecies and what have you have all come true. You're a God that we can trust, a God we can have hope in. And I pray at this time people will be turning to the Bible and thus turning to you, Father, and that they will find this hope that they need. Some people, Lord, are anguishing that (coughs) they are so wicked that they can't be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that they will turn in the word to 1 John 1, 9 and know with an assurity that you are a God who forgives if we confess. You are just and you are faithful. Lord, bless all the listeners at this time as well. I pray that fear will not have a part in their life. I pray that as they turn to you, Lord, they will realize that perfect love casts out fear and you are indeed perfect love. Thank you for taking us through the study today and impress upon us what we need to know to get through these times of trouble 
dear Lord, and come out the other side. Bring us closer to you and each other, I pray in your loving name. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, everyone, for uh, your participation to this uh, Bible study. It's good to have you even via Zoom. We may have some interferences. We may is, may not be as as good as coming together, see each other, but uh, we are very thankful to God that we are able to uh, continue to present this Bible study. And uh, to our uh, listeners, I will wish you God's blessings and peace. Keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.